0: Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you in the house and also thank you for joining us online today. So let me just remind you that next Sunday is Easter Sunday. Are you excited about finally worshiping together on Easter Sunday? Man, it's been a while, hasn't it? I mean, last year we missed being all together, so it's a great opportunity. Hey, if you're worshiping online, you're like, I'm not sure about coming back if this is a good time. Easter Sunday is the perfect time. We're going to provide a very... Uh, what would you say, COVID-friendly environment. is going to be a tent just outside our worship center, and we're going to be streaming into that. We're going to have some special treats, make it a really great venue for you. But it's a great place to come. And of course, uh, it's also a great time to invite someone, someone that maybe doesn't go to church, maybe somebody you know, maybe somebody has spiritual questions. Easter Sunday is the best day to invite and bring them to join you on that day. So Easter Sunday is a great day uh, to be here and I hope that you'll start thinking about who you can invite and bring next Sunday. Okay? But today is Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday and today is really the kickoff of what we call Holy Week. Holy Week is where Christians all over the world really think about and remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Palm Sunday is the kickoff for that. We remember the last week of Jesus' life. On that Sunday, that Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and he was celebrated by the crowds that met him there, waving palm branches, greeting him as they would some kind of victorious king or military leader. But that cheer of the crowd that took place on Sunday began to fade on Monday and the place that received Jesus with such joy on Sunday became a very dark and dangerous place on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus was confronting the religious leaders that were trying to trap him and trying to trip him up and have some excuse to put him to death. On Wednesday, it's a silent day where we're really not sure what Jesus was doing on that day. Certainly he was preparing himself for what was to come. Then there was Thursday, where Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room, where he washed their feet, where he encouraged them, where he prayed over them, and where he took the Lord's Supper together for the first time. And then late Thursday night and into the early morning hours of Friday, the middle of the night, Jesus would be arrested, Jesus would be tried, he would be scourged, and ultimately crucified. What we want to talk about today, though, is just a slice of all that that I just described. But yet maybe the most important part because what we're going to read today doesn't just tell you how Jesus died, but it really answers the question why Jesus died. Not just how he suffered, but why he suffered. So once you get your Bible, I want you to open it up to Matthew chapter 27. That's where we're going to be uh, today, Matthew 27, uh, beginning at verse uh, 15, all right? Matthew 27, uh, beginning at verse 15. And uh, this is the word of God. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it that you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy They had handed him over. Now stop right there. What I'm going to share with you today is probably, I guess I would put it to you this way. If I had one message to preach and that was it, it would probably be this one. If I had one last time to open up God's word and share God's word with you, it would probably be this passage because of its significance and helping us understand the meaning of the cross. I want you to look at this verse that we just read and circle the word Pilate there. Uh, Who is Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate was the governor, the Roman governor over Judea, the region of Judea. His main office was there in Jerusalem. Uh, He served in that role from 26 to 36 A.D. His existence is well attested, not just within the biblical material, but what we call the extra biblical, that is outside the Bible. Historical documents, historians, and so on, all attest to the presence, the existence of Pontius Pilate. In fact, not too long ago, back in the 60s, they excavated a stone, which they now call the Pilate Stone, that has his name and his official role etched in stone. So we have that from historical documents, from archaeology, pointing to the fact that Pontius Pilate actually existed. And Pilate is best known for being the man who sentenced Jesus to death. Now, what was going on in Pilate's life, we don't really get from the Bible, but we do pick up from history. That what was happening behind the scenes is that Pilate was really on thin ice politically. Pilate had been put there by Emperor Tiberius to keep the peace. But keeping the peace in Jerusalem was no easy task. It was then, as it is now, kind of this boiling pot that often will boil over into riots and chaos. And already, Pilate had had to put down three insurrections and three riots. The last one, well, people thought that he abused his power, that it was overreach, and actually official uh, complaints against Pilate were sent to the emperor in Rome. So the last thing Pilate needed was another riot. The last thing he needed or wanted was more trouble, right? He just needed to keep the peace. But when everyone comes together, like at the Passover festival, that's when trouble seems to happen. And so, Pilate is here, and he's trying to keep the peace. Now, what you need to understand is that up to this point, Jesus has suffered through three Jewish trials and three what we would call secular trials, all right? three Jewish trials, right after his arrest, he was brought before Annas. Annas was really the the godfather of the religious leaders. He used to be the high priest. He was no longer the high priest, but he was the one pulling all the strings. He was the one in control behind the scenes. After he was tried before Annas, then he was brought before Caiaphas. This is again in the middle of the night. Caiaphas was the ruling high priest and Annas' son-in-law, you can start to see how all that works together. And then eventually in the early morning hours, they, they convened the Sanhedrin where they officially condemned Jesus to death. Now, these were illegal trials. You're not supposed to have a trial in the middle of the night. You're not, they did not present uh, credible witnesses. They did not present credible evidence. And, and yet, it wasn't about the evidence. It wasn't about procedure. It was about Jesus dying. That's what they wanted. After the Sanhedrin officially charged him with uh, insurrection Uh, And blasphemy, they sent him to Pilate because Pilate was the Roman in charge and only he was the one that had the powers to execute. And so they took him toward Pilate. Pilate examined him. Pilate, Pilate found no fault in him. And Pilate began to realize, hey, this guy isn't as bad as they say he is. He's not a threat, but they're obviously trying to settle some score by taking Jesus out. It was for envy, Pilate said. That they wanted him dead. They were jealous of Jesus. They were envious of Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus. Pilate didn't want to put an innocent man to death, but on the other hand, he didn't want more trouble. He didn't want another riot. He didn't want uh, people to bring some kind of charge against him. So he was really skating on thin ice here. Pilate tried to kind of pushed the issue away to Herod. Herod Antipas was the one ruling in, uh, in the Galilee. He, had been in, he was in town for the Passover, so he sent Jesus to Herod. Maybe Herod would make some decision, but Herod just kind of laughed at Jesus and sent him back. So now the passage we're reading, Jesus is back before Pilate. It's now early in the morning. John 19 says it's probably about 6 a.m. in the morning, roughly that time of day. Jesus has been bounced around from trial to trial, place to place, all night long, abused along the way. And here he stands before uh, Pilate. And Pilate is trying to decide what is he going to do. And then he comes up with a plan, right? He's got a plan. See, there was a custom. It was not a Jewish custom. It was a Roman custom to allow one prisoner to go free every year at the Passover. It was a, it was a sign of goodwill, right? It was, a, it was a, a kind gesture to the Jewish people. And so Pilate thought, here's what I'll do. I'll bring out Jesus and I'll bring out this guy named Barabbas and make them choose. Now, I want you to look at the, the, the name Barabbas there. You might underline the name Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas we don't know a lot about this guy he's a mysterious person he only appears in this part of the story and we don't see him again before or since and so Barabbas is an interesting guy we don't know a lot about him all we do know about him is that Barabbas was a bad dude all right he was a bad guy he was a legit criminal Barabbas was a part of an underground group that was trying to create chaos and overthrow the Roman government. That was clear. Uh, Barabbas was, uh, he was a man who had a rap sheet, and on that rap sheet included things like robbery and murder. He was literally on death row for the crimes that he had committed. So Barabbas would be what we would call today like a domestic terrorist. All right? That's what he was. He was a bad guy. He deserved uh, judgment for, for very sure. He was a dangerous guy. And so here he is on death row waiting his own execution, waiting his own crucifixion, And so Pilate decides to pull the worst guy he could possibly find and then bring Jesus out and let the people choose. He knew that the Roman, I mean, the the religious leaders, they were the ones that had the angst against Jesus. And he thought the people loved Jesus, right? Jesus had just ridden in on the back of a donkey and almost a whole town came to celebrate him. He knew that Jesus had worked miracles from town to town. He knew many of them thought he was a righteous man. Some thought he was a great teacher. Others thought he was the Christ. I mean, he was at the top of his popularity. If I could just bypass these religious leaders and take it to the people, the people will always choose Jesus and then problem solved, right? I don't have a riot. I please the people. I save an innocent man. My work here is done, right? That, that's what he's saying. This is a slam dunk situation. And it probably would have worked that way if there had not been a dream. But the dream pivoted everything. Look look again at verse 19. It says, and while he was sitting on the judge's bench, His wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Here he is, Pilate, he's standing, he's on the official seat, he's making judgment, Jesus is up here, Uh, Barabbas is up here, he's about to make the case and let the people decide, and then he gets this note, right? Uh, Pilate, can I... Can you step over here for a minute? And so he steps over and he gets this message from his wife, says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man, Jesus, referring to Jesus. Don't have anything to do with him uh, because I've been been up all night with this dream. I think it's kind of interesting to think about while Jesus was being bounced around from mock trial to mock trial, you have this woman being tormented in her dreams about Jesus. Now, we don't know what the dream was about. I'd love to know, wouldn't you? I'd love to know what the dream was and what what she saw. but, But what she does say is that she was afraid for Pilate. Some people think that this was a dream given by God. I've heard people say, well, God sent her this dream. We're not told that God sent the dream. We don't really know. But the dream obviously troubled her enough to warn her husband. And she had every reason to do that because Pilate's life was in danger, and not in the way that you would think. I mean, some people think, oh, his life's in danger because of a riot or something. No, no, something even greater. History really tells us this. After Pilate had Jesus executed not too long thereafter, he also had another leadership blunder that was reported back to Emperor Tiberius. He was Removed from his position in Judea. He was brought back to Rome. He was eventually exiled to Gaul And um, The historian Eusebius tells us that Pilate was so distraught with guilt over what he had done to Jesus That he took his own life Maybe his wife saw that Maybe she saw that something terrible was on the horizon for her husband Whatever the case was while he was dealing with this mysterious warning from his wife the religious leaders were working the crowd. That's all the time they needed. This little sidebar provided them kind of this, this window of opportunity to begin to get the crowd all revved up and to tell them to cry out to, for Barabbas' release and the crucifixion of Jesus. So now we read back in verse 20, it says the chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. And Pilate asked, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they answered, crucify him. I mean, this window, uh, this hesitation, this pumping of the brakes because of this dream gave them this opportunity to stir up the crowd. And so he said, which one do you want me to release? This is a slam dunk. You're obviously going to want Jesus. And they start to cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And then Pilate asked probably the most important question anyone can ever ask. What should I do with Jesus? That is a question that every one of us has to answer. That's a question you have to answer. What will you do with Jesus? Just as Jesus was standing before Pilate, one day you were going to stand before Christ. And listen, this is a very personal question. What will you do with Jesus? It's not some, well, you know, my, my family thinks this, or I grew up that way. No, no, we're not talking about your mom and your dad. We're not talking about how you grew up. We're talking about you right now. What will you do with Jesus? Will you accept him or will you reject him? Will you worship him or will you push him down? Will you ignore him or will you follow him? That is a decision you have to make. It's a personal question. It's a personal decision. It is a, it is a critical decision because that decision, what you do with Jesus, determines your eternal destiny. Whether you will spend eternity in heaven or hell, all determines on how you respond to Jesus. And it is a timely question. It is a question you need to answer today. You need to answer now. You say, well, pastor, you don't understand. I got a lot of time, man. I'm gonna sow my wild oats and I'm gonna, when I settle down, when I get a family, when I have me some kids, when I settle in my career, when I get into retirement, then I'm gonna deal with Jesus. No, you have no promise of tomorrow. All you have is now, today. What will you do with Jesus? That is a question that Pilate faced And as he was asking that question, the crowd began to cry out. Look at verse 23. They said, "Uh, crucify him. Verse 23, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The mob morphed into some dark, twisted, sick, ominous chant. Crucify, crucify, we want his blood. Look at verse 24, and when Pilate saw that he, he was getting nowhere but a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. There was a custom, a Jewish custom at the time that if there was a murder in a, a, a Jewish village the elders were to investigate and bring justice. But if for some reason they could not bring justice, either they couldn't provide the right evidence or they couldn't find the man that committed the crime, if they were unable to deal with justice, then what they would do is bring out a basin and they would wash their hands as if to absolve themselves of this crime. And what Pilate was doing was using their own custom and he's saying, listen, this is not my fault. This is not on me. Right, this is on you. And even they respond, "Well, let His his blood be on us and on our children." This is not on me. But listen, Pilate could not wash his hands of Jesus. I mean, he had the power to set him free, and he chose not to. He had the desire to set him free, and he chose him not to. He had the he had the opportunity to set him free, and he chose him not to. Why? Because he was afraid of the crowd. Because he was afraid of his reputation. He's afraid his career would suffer, and so he gave in to the crowd. And he thought maybe I could just wash my hands of Jesus and he couldn't. Listen, my friends, you can't wash your hands of Jesus either. You can't just say, well, I'm not gonna have anything to do with him because you will stand before him. And I want you to look and see what happens next. Look at verse verse 26. It says, then he released Barabbas to them and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Think about it. Barabbas was released. This vile man was released, and Jesus was tortured. says so he handed him over to be flogged. Some versions, maybe in your Bible, use the word scourged. A Roman scourging was particularly violent and horrific. The prisoner would be stripped down and chained up to a pole or a pillar with their backs bent over and taunt. They would take a whip with a wooden handle about this long with probably five to, to ten little leather straps off the end of it. And the ends were embedded uh, pieces of metal and glass and bone. And usually two soldiers would go to work on one guy at a time. And they would lacerate the back with the violent push. And every time those, those pieces of metal and bone would sink deep into the tissue and rip it out. It was blood splattered everywhere. It was violent. It was grotesque. It was horrific. Most prisoners didn't even survive the scourgings. They just died on the spot. Jesus was left in his, a pool of his own blood. While Barabbas was set free, Jesus was being tortured. While Barabbas was set free, Jesus was going to Calvary. Jesus was carrying his own cross. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Persians did that, but they certainly perfected it, and they mass-produced it as a... As a a way to hinder people from uh, pushing back against them. The, the crucifixion, the nailing of the hands and the feet, that wasn't even the worst of it. The people died because of they just simply couldn't breathe. They would have to push up on the nails on their feet to catch a breath. And so it was a slow, painful, humiliating death that sometimes took hours but sometimes took days for the person to finally die. While Barabbas was released, Jesus was dying. Why is this story in the Bible, this story about Barabbas? Did you know that Barabbas is mentioned in every one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them mention Barabbas? And why is it even here? I think the reason why the Bible mentions Barabbas is that this story about Barabbas doesn't just tell us how Jesus died, it tells us why Jesus died. It doesn't just describe to us uh, how Jesus suffered, it describes to us why Jesus suffered. And Barabbas here really brings that into, into focal point. Because Jesus, on that day, literally died in Barabbas' place. You see that? That was his cross. Barabbas was a criminal. Barabbas deserved death. Barabbas deserved judgment. Barabbas was to be crucified with two other criminals. There were three crosses prepared for three criminals that day. And that was supposed to be Barabbas. But in a moment, somebody took his place. And my friends, that is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is Jesus in my place. It's really interesting when you think about the the name Barabbas. It's really, we run it together, Barabbas, but it's really Bar-Abbas. Bar-Abbas. Bar Bar means son. Abba means father, right? And so Bar-Abbas means the son of a father, the son of a man, So it's a very generic name, right? Would you agree? Very generic name. Hey, son of a man, come over here. I mean, that's a generic name. And yet, it's generic because he is the son of a man. He's a son of every man. He is every man. The reason why the story is here is because Barabbas represents you. He's a type of you. He represents you in this story. He represents me in this story. That in our sinfulness, in our waywardness, in our wickedness, that Jesus took our place on the cross. That's why he's in this story. That's why Jesus died as a substitute for you. As an atoning sacrifice for you. That Jesus stepped in front and took the bullet of God's judgment that was aimed toward you. That's why Barabbas is here. This is why the prophet said Jesus died. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, he says, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquity. Punish for our peace was on him. Punishment of our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord punished him for the iniquity of us all. I mean, can you let that sink in for just a minute? The reason why Jesus died was because of you. Because of me. Because he loved you. And he didn't want you to suffer the wrath of God for your sin. So he chose to do it for you. That's why Jesus died. Now you may say, Craig, uh, I mean, I, I hear you and I understand what you're saying, but how does that impact my life today? Okay, great, God loves me and Jesus died in my place, I get it, but, but how does that impact my life today? So let me, give you, let me give you just a couple of thoughts here as to how this impacts you and this is why we celebrate Jesus. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, this is why we love Jesus. That's why Christians love Jesus. This is why we worship Jesus. That's why we lift our hands and we sing to Jesus. It's why we give our life for Jesus. That's why we, we, we do all we can to tell people about Jesus. That's why some, some of us go overseas and we plant churches and tell people about Jesus. Why are we so in love with Jesus? Because Jesus took our place. And, and that plays out in a couple really practical ways. Number one, because of his suffering, no, no, because of his guilt, you are innocent. This is how it impacts you. If Jesus stood in your place, then because of his guilt, you were innocent. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. When on that morning, there was Barabbas and there was Jesus, right? Barabbas was the guilty guy. He was guilty, no question. He was vile. He was wicked. He deserved judgment. And then there's innocent Jesus. And so there stands two people. One is guilty, one is innocent. And yet, in the moment... Now say with me here, in the moment when Pilate makes this declaration, when Pilate declares that Barabbas can go free and Jesus is to be punished, in that moment of judicial declaration, all of a sudden, those two men's identities were switched. And now in that moment of declaration, it's as if Barabbas the guilty became Barabbas the innocent. And there was Jesus, the innocent became Jesus the guilty. Now, my friends, that's exactly what happens when you give your life to Christ. Did you understand that? In that moment, there is this great exchange. There is a declaration from God. We are justified, the Bible says, by faith. The word justification means a judicial declaration. And in the moment that you cry out to Jesus for forgiveness, there is a declaration from heaven with Jesus sitting, the the Father sitting on the throne, declaring that because of your cry for mercy, that he is going to declare you innocent, and he's going to declare Jesus guilty. That's why the Bible says it so clearly over and over and over in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That means when you give your life to Christ, God, God no, no longer looks at you as a screw-up and somebody that there's a disappointment and somebody that's always constantly failed and somebody that's, that's stamped with adultery or divorce or abuse or whatever the thing is that you're wearing. He doesn't see that. He sees you as pure and clean in his sight as if you had never sinned, covered and cloaked in the innocence of Jesus. What a thought. You know what that means? That means you don't have to bear your past. Your past doesn't have to haunt you anymore. Your past doesn't have to define you anymore. Your past doesn't have to follow you anymore. You want to start over? You can. You want to be free from that? You can. His guilt makes you innocent. Uh, another thing that how it impacts you because Jesus stood in your place. Listen, his his suffering brings you comfort. Jesus suffered. Would you agree with that? He suffered. He suffered when he was flogged. He suffered when he was carrying that cross to Calvary. He suffered on the cross. And listen, his suffering wasn't just contained to his physical suffering. He suffered the wrath of God. We don't have any clue what that is like for him to suffer the eternal wrath of God for all mankind, for all time on him. In that one moment, Jesus suffered And he suffered not only to pay the penalty for your sin, but get this, he also suffered in such a way so that he would be able to comfort you. Listen, are you suffering today? Some of you suffer in silence. Some of you, you're sitting right here and you look great on the outside, but you're hurting on the inside. You're grieving on the inside. You may be watching online and you're in a hospital bed or you're in a wheelchair and you're suffering. Maybe you've suffered a loss, and you're grieving. I've already, this week, embraced those that are weeping over loss and death. And my friends, because Jesus stood in your place, he can identify with you, and he can draw close to you, and he can help you and understand when you feel like your world is falling apart. But not only does his guilt make you innocent and his suffering bring you comfort, but listen, ultimately, his death brings you life. His death brings you life. Think about Barabbas. He's on death row. He's waiting, tomorrow I'm going to die. This is my last meal. This is my last night. He's probably up all night just anticipating the horrors that await him and then in a moment, he got his life back. In a moment, he could just go home. He'd just go home. He got his life back. And listen, when anyone comes to faith in Jesus, you get a new life. Listen, the gospel is not about you just getting better. It's not a Jesus improvement plan. Okay, I'm going to add to your old life, going to add a few little Christian things here, and that's going to make you a little bit better. It's not just about bonus and raise and and, and smart kids, you know, and that kind of thing. it's It's about an old life being gone and a new life coming. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That is the gospel that your old self is dead and you're raised again to walk in newness of life. That's why we do a whole baptism. It's your old life dead and you're raised a new person. And listen, if you need to start over, if you want a new life, a new life here, a new life with peace, a new life with purpose, a new life with assurance, a new life with the Holy Spirit within you, with a new family of God that you can be a part of, that your life can have eternal meaning and value and eternal life to come. That's what Jesus offers. new life. His death offers you a new life. But you got to receive it. You have to receive it. I I don't really know what happened to Barabbas. I would love to know, wouldn't you? I'd love to know what he did. You know, some, there's many monologues and even movies about Barabbas' life. They're all fictitious. Nobody really knows. Some people think that Barabbas may have followed Jesus. I mean, from a distance, obviously, watched him being scourged, and saying, that was, that was me. That's what it was supposed to be, me. And watched him in the crowd as he carried that cross and fell. And Simon of Cyrene had to carry it the rest of the way. Watched him as he was nailed to the cross. Watched him as he suffered and died. Watched him from a distance as he forgave one thief on the other cross. And, and watched him be rejected by the other. Maybe he did. Maybe Barabbas was still in Jerusalem when he heard three days later that Jesus had risen from the dead. Maybe he was there in that crowd at Pentecost when he heard Peter stand up and say, this Christ now offers forgiveness of sin to those who repent and believe. Maybe, maybe Barabbas finally came to follow Jesus. I don't know. I hope so. Or maybe he just went home and didn't give him another thought. You know, the real issue is not what did Barabbas do with Jesus. The real issue is what will you do with Jesus? Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? In this moment, you have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. What will you do with him? Listen, you cannot wash your hands of Jesus. You have to give an answer. And I want you right now, while the Spirit of God is moving in your heart, I wanna give you an opportunity to say yes, to not push Jesus away, but to receive him by faith. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised raise it from the dead, you'll be saved. Saved from the penalty of your sins. Saved from you facing the wrath of God. Saved to walk a new life. But you have to receive him by faith. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray a simple prayer of faith. And I want to include you in that. So right now, with your heads bowed, nobody looking around. If you say, Pastor, I, I, I need to get right with God. I need to make sure. I need to know for sure that I'm right with God. And I want to pray that prayer with you. Then... I want you to lift up your hand right now. Listen, I'm not going to call you out, but it lets me know who I'm praying for, all right? So just lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I need to know for sure that I'm right with God. Lift it up. Lift it up right now. Pastor, I just want to get this right. I want to know for sure that I'm right with God, all right? Thank you. All right? Lift up your hand. Lift it high enough where I can see it. Pastor, pray for me. Pastor, pray for me. I need to know for sure. Anybody else? Lift it up. All right, you put your hand down. Why don't you just pray this simple prayer with me? Dear Father, I thank you for your great love for me. And I just confess today that I've sinned against you, and I deserve judgment. That I am Barabbas. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead. So I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please come into my life, make me a new person. Today I choose to follow you. Thank you for loving me. Father, I thank you so much for your unfailing love for us. And Lord, as we come together, we remember, as we go into this holy week, we remember the love of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection and hope of Jesus. And Lord, I pray as we take this communion together that we would remember your great love for us we pray this in Jesus name